Hello, I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, most times ridiculous. This week, we welcome Carissa Weber, who works as a licensed professional counselor. Welcome everyone to Therapist Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing a healthcare professional each episode, asking questions that you want the answers to and answering questions you didn't know you had. I'm Joanna, a bird certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered female and my pronouns are she, hers, and I took two road trips this summer. Very nice. <laughs> I'm getting so good at not reacting. Hell yeah. And I'm Sarah, an LPC from Pennsylvania, transplant from South Jersey. I'm a straight cis white woman. My pronouns are she, her, and I left my first positive review on an Audible original story today. Ooh. It was well-earned. For those that have listened in the past, I enjoyed writing negative reviews on misogynistic stories in the beginning of the <laughs> summer. <laughs> so yeah very cool very proud of myself what's I'm going on with you too. today not much I'm, I've, I'm i'm back from the road you know back yeah i saw a bald eagle while i was driving which is very cool very exciting yeah what was what was the premise was it flying through the air was it on a telephone pole that was made to look like a bird's nest um it was on a tree it was very majestically mm-hmm. sitting there um and I was like, hey, I think that's a bald eagle. And my husband was like, yep. Yeah, my husband looked it up and there's like 700 bald eagle nests in Ohio. That, I'm never going to hear that sentence again. Good. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so specific. Uh, the zoo in Norristown, Elmwood mm-hmm. Park Zoo, has a bunch of bald eagles. They're just sitting like at the entrance, like tethered, like, I think. Oh, I, tethered. I mean, I think they have like a tracking device on that, but they're just oh, like kind of yeah. chilling and alert and majestic, but also, I don't know. Can they like come at you? Uh, I don't know, but if they did, I would <laughs> full on like run. Well, no, I probably wouldn't run because they could very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I think they're good at like, like I think in Alaska, they have to like protect children from them. Like, you know, in like, you know, rural Alaska. I, yeah, I know this well, from watching Alaska State Troopers. <laughs> I, I mean, I am terrified of letting the cats outside because hawks, mm-hmm. because everywhere in Pennsylvania that has any development used to be a hawk, a hawk's house. <laughs> and they are just sitting waiting for revenge. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't want to mess with any of that. One time, one summer, uh, there was a hawk's nest outside of my bedroom window, and that was mm-hmm. not fun. Because... The hawks in North Philly are, like, terrifying. Like, you ever just walk down the street and they're sitting on, like, I walked down yeah. 7th and Fairmount once, and there was one just sitting on a neighbor's, like, fence, like, chain link fence. <laughs> just, like, badass and terrifying. And You're too big. 
you know, it was pretty massive. This is like the size of my torso. Like birds yeah. are terrifying. They're oh flying gosh. rodents. Um, I saw a pileated woodpecker, which is a huge, like it's a woodpecker that's like the size of your forearm, which is terrifying. Mm-hmm. And they also, their laugh is very loud and close to a human. And so Wait, it's so terrifying. Their laugh? Are they, are yeah, they laughing like, or is it like a sound yeah, they make? It's a sound they make, but it's kind mm-hmm. of sounds like, you know, I mean like Woody the woodpecker, but like a bird. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not going to do it, but um yeah there you can like you could like hear them from afar like whoa that's a hmm. that's a sound yeah it's haunting wildlife right yeah (laughs) here's other i saw it was in chicago i saw a the chicago like a metro area i saw a coyote Mm -hmm. i saw um a bunny Mm -hmm. and uh that's about it nice yeah really exciting things that are happening in my life I'm remembering a time and excuse my name dropping while we were in Tuscany (laughs) and we saw this. Okay. First of all, the name of this animal is like a, like a nutria. It like, it sounds like a, like a supplement, (laughs) but apparently they are so invasive in like central Italy, like kind of like our spotted lanternflies, but this is like a, like almost like copybara sized animal. And (laughs) Like the locals, like my husband and Cody and I looked down at this lake that it was in and it was like, what a cute little animal. And all the locals were just like looking like, Ugh. <laughs> like such disdain on their faces. It's very, very funny. But yeah, I, I don't I'm going to, I'm going to change our trajectory very harshly and mention mm-hmm. something I don't think you're going to be excited about, <laughs> but PSLs are back. <laughs> Wait, say it again. <laughs> I meant like the announcement, but I don't know what a PSL is. <laughs> Pumpkin spice latte. Oh, oh that's <laughs> fine. <It's... laughs> I, I just like, I never Ooh. go in Starbucks, but you know, I was like on the road. So I just noticed mm-hmm. like Friday they weren't there. And then on Sunday they were there. <laughs> like Welcome, like, welcome over, back. Over the weekend, just like, fall came on in and it's still 100 degrees here so someone needs to let the weather know i'm very that's great i mean i I love that people can just have that for everything and i'm not being facetious not being sarcastic go drink and eat things if they taste good to you i promise the more i explain it it sounds like i'm no i know not being genuine yeah drink what you want I'm a big proponent of cream spooky cheese. of spooky season. I know it's like Heck, a thing yeah. that people get like, Ugh, but I love it. It's spooky season is the best. Spooky season, yeah. I'm like ready. I'm gonna make a bunch of witches hats, um, <gasps> just for fun. That'll be nice. Wait, did yeah. Connecticut have mischief night? Yes. Okay, we will have to ask our non East Coast guests if they have mischief night as well. Yeah, I don't know how far it goes. I didn't realize it was. I thought it was a universal thing super regional really i mean it makes well, sense unless it's our like guest weird. does know what it is <laughs> then maybe <not> oh. <laughs> we will see yeah we'll see we'll well, look for it our up. listeners the mischief night is a night the night before halloween that youths and some bored adults go out and cause mischief the most well-known mischief is toilet papering somebody's house more severe mischief is throwing eggs at somebody's car Crossing a line into delinquency yeah. is somebody spray painting a house. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
did you did you partake in any mischief yeah i would always go out with my older siblings who were toilet papering things my brother was like doing mischief with his with his group of with his group of friends but my sister would take me out in toilet paper sometimes so police would come up to you and shine their very bright light on you and it was enough for us kids to just scatter because <laughs> it's not a life uh yeah yeah but yeah i love spooky season spooky, spooky, spooky. we are all dancing right now yes. for everyone listening um how clean are your floors floors are pretty clean and you know what i'm also realizing that i don't ever know if i make a mistake <laughs> <laughs> So every time you ask me that, I'm like, nah, I didn't say anything incorrect. <laughs> yeah. But it probably wasn't actually bald eagles at the Emerald Park Zoo. And it probably, <laughs> I don't know. Well, fine. That'll be like a later housekeeping after you yeah. do it again. Because you kind like of a really house remodeling. To it, like when I'm done mm-hmm. editing. So um, that sounds yeah. good. Yeah. How well, about how about your floors? I'm, I think my floors are pretty clean. All right. I'm very proud of you for keeping yeah, those floors you. clean. Sweep housekeeping. Housekeeping completed. Yep. Done. Stay tuned after the break for our history lesson. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, goodness. Man. And now it's time for our history lesson. I have a spooky tone. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> what that do? spooky noise was. <laughs> and now it's time for our history lesson. <laughs> Today's history lesson is not spooky. It's a little bit spooky. Disclaimer. Oh my god, wait. Today's <laughs> yeah, history lesson like, is, is a kickoff to our spooky season. It's this is literally amazing. spooky. Yeah, it literally literally. Lord. The history lesson is... Go- I'm not going to do like an offensive <laughs> Romanian accent. <laughs> the history lesson is compiled facts in the form of a narrative describing history, good and bad, in order to give context for the field our interviewee works in. Our sources for today, an article entitled What is Fear? by Lisa Fritcher. An article entitled Afraid of What? Fear and the Rise of the Security Industrial Complex <laughs> by Thomas Ditcher and Dante Desparte. Another article entitled, How Rye Bread May Have Caused the Salem Witch Trials by Kate Lowe's. An article entitled, The Biology of Fear by Jenna Hodney. Wikipedia.org, who is thriving today because of my $5 donation, which I can't stop bringing up. The Biology of Fear (laughs) by Ralph Adolph. Trigger warning today, none. We do talk about fear a little bit, which may be uncomfortable for some folks, but no general trigger warnings today. Joanna, I'm going to talk about some terms with you real quick. Bring them on. Some conceptual, some biological. Got a nice mix. Mm. Definition number one, fear. What? A natural, powerful, and primitive human emotion. It involves a universal biochemical response as well as high individual emotional responses. Fear alerts us to the presence of danger or the threat of harm, whether that danger is physical or psychological. The amygdala 
Mm-hmm. One of two almond-shaped clusters of nuclei located in the temporal lobes of the brain's cerebrum in complex vertebrates, including humans. That's us. Yeah. It performs a primary role in the processing of memory, decision-making, and emotional responses, which include fear, duh, anxiety, and aggression. It is part of the limbic system. Mm-hmm. And last but not least, our hippocampus. A major component of the brain. I was going to make a joke and then I decided against it, but then I paused anyway. <laughs> Give us the <laughs> <a> joke. <laughs> hippocampus. No. Okay. <laughs> hip, hip. <laughs> Hippocampus, a major component of the brain of humans and other vertebrates. Humans and other mammals have two hippocampi, one in each side of the brain. Part of the limbic system, it plays important roles in the consolidation of information for short-term memory and long-term memory, and in spatial memory, and in spatial memory that enables navigation. Mm-hmm. Now we are going to move on to the history of fear. Fear is a survival function that has evolved to protect us. When faced with a physical threat, our bodies undergo changes that prepare us to fight or run, the fight or flight response. If you recognize the threat before it reaches you, you're more likely to survive. When we lived in caves with mastodons and other beasts roaming outside, we fought them or we ran. Fun fact. Fact. Dr. Catherine M. Pittman, Joanna, the the continuing education uh, seminar that Love we her. did. She's amazing. Rewire the Anxious Brain. She... Famously, well, famous to me, called our early ancestors the scared people, saying yeah. that they literally had things to be scared of every single day that would be life-threatening. Yeah, I think she also says that, like, we're descendants from, like, people who are, like, from people who have anxiety. I use that all the time. Like, yeah, hey, anxiety isn't bad. Like, it's the reason we're alive. Yes, yes, agreed. Yes. Oh, we are knocking it out of the park. Early humans could not control much of their lives as life was precarious and insecure. Besides wild beasts that could be seen and could, in fact, harm you, there were many other things to be afraid of that were not so easy to understand or see. The faces of the moon were mysteries, and some people were afraid of a full moon, culminating with unfounded connections between the moon and lunacy. Mm, A solar eclipse. Mm. Lunacy. No. A solar eclipse was unexpected and terrifying. These days, people stare at them. While thunder (laughs) and lightning could be heard and seen, but not understood. I, that hit me. Like, not, like, just knowing that thunder and lightning were occurring and having no way to think or explain why it was happening. I mean, also, could you imagine if just, like, something moves in front of the sun and you're like, oh, I guess this is it now. This is it, everybody. Yeah. No, I cannot. Another potential source of fear came from living on a plain near a high, snow-covered, and impassable mountain, bordering between the known and the unknown. Mm. Uh, Strangers who spoke a different language might make one afraid, and with this, otherness was born. There were countless things to be afraid of, leading to beliefs and rituals involving evolving to make sense of these possible dangers and to give our ancestors more of a sense of control. Whether these rituals had anything to do with reality did not matter as they offered comfort. Of course, the biggest threat and the only certainty was death. Despite our knowledge that eventually everyone dies, hundreds of beliefs and rituals have arisen to explain death and even to prolong life. 
More concrete fears arose during the medieval times, along with the development of agriculture, class structure, feudalism, etc. Cities were attacked by invaders and plundered. Highway robbers could attack travelers. Some dangers were seen for what they were. For example, a highway robber was not believed to be the result of a witch, but other less understood dangers lent themselves to such magnified superstitious beliefs. I really like putting feudalism in every history that we have. <laughs> Man. And also, I, I like that there was some rationality, you know, like, oh, you know, no, this person's just a robber, it's fine, but but this person is having a bad day and they're very emotional and that's not easy to explain or understand yeah. because we are intolerant. The witch trials of Northern Europe and America in the late 16th and early 17th century resulted in an estimated 40,000 to 60,000 people executed as witches, the majority of whom were women. Witches and witchcraft were blamed for, for everything from diseases to crop failures and famine to economic dislocation. One can argue that this, quote, war on women pervades many of the inequities placed upon them until this day. Here's a fun fact. In 1976, Dr. Linda Caporale of the Rennes-Slayer Polytechnic Institute found evidence that supported the hypothesis that brief and intense psychosis symptoms suffered by so many individuals accused of witchcraft were, suff were suffering from ergotism, which is a disease uh, commonly contracted by rye. Here's another fun fact. If you were in my AP US history class, and you didn't want us to continue learning what we were learning, you could just bring that up and the teacher would be, our teacher would be distracted into talking about ergotism and, um, and the Salem witch trials. So I didn't know a lot of people knew about this and it was brought up to me a couple of weeks ago and I was like, oh, more people should know. And then I realized oh, everyone already knows. But me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was just like bad bread you know like yeah yeah and folks that were cooking it maybe would have been the ladies or the kids and they were the most highly accused but your ap history teacher would know better yeah she always loved talking about it that's also when i had like undiagnosed narcolepsy and fell asleep in class so she wasn't a big fan of me um but i got a four on the test so <laughs> well you weren't rye also yep I was awry. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> our current rituals and superstitions may lead to less suffering, but it is plain that we continue to rely on them. In the highlands of New Guinea, members of the Tefalum tribe believe that a person's death is caused by a, quote, bis, a sorcerer or an evil person with the power to kill by magic. But a bis sorcerer can only kill a person if that person is alone. Therefore, the best way to prevent this from happening is to never be alone. And from May to California, and from Maine to California, many of us avoid doing much on Friday the 13th. We do not walk under ladders. We cross our fingers and avoid black cats. Or if you're Joanna, you do those all the time. Anything that has under... the number 13, I'm like, uh oh, that's a bad one. I mean, yeah, harmless. I walked under a ladder the other day and I saw it. I saw it coming towards me. I saw it for like a block. I was like, should okay. I cross the street? Should I like walk <laughs> into the street so I'm safe from the ladder, but unsafe from vehicles? Hmm. I walked under it because I'm because I'm brave. I mean, you'll also find that a lot of like tall buildings, there isn't a 13th floor, which is yes. just like, okay, but it's still there though. <laughs> like you didn't like get rid of it. It's like still, a, <laughs> it's the 14th floor is the 13th floor, mm -hmm. so. Or we could be like that episode of Evil and... Ugh. 
We don't stalk new episodes. Okay. New episodes this week. New episode. New episode. Alert! 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 <laughs> Spooky. All right. <laughs> God. All right. Probably the most common response to large-scale threats was akin to closing the barn door after the horses had escaped. If an invasion by another group of people had taken place, the obvious response was a barrier or a wall, which is wild. With examples including the Great Wall of China, built in 7th century Mm. BCE, that thing is so old. Adrian's Wall, built in the UK around 122 CE, which is what the wall in uh, Game of Thrones is based off of. And it was built by the Romans, who were occupying England to keep out what is now known as the Scots. Mm-hmm. And the Maginot Line, built in France in the 1920s, um, to protect themselves from German soldiers. Walls keep people out, but they also keep people in, and can be, and can be ways of protecting against invasions of ideas as well as people. The Berlin Wall kept East Germans in, but it also tried to keep out the bad influences of the West. I was thinking about this when putting it together that I remember always thinking like, oh, it's just a wall. Like people jump over walls. And then I realized, oh, wait, there's people guarding the wall. People guarding the wall heavily, as I'm about to read, heavily armed. When I lived in Berlin, uh, I asked my host mother about the wall and she was like, it just added like three hours to your trip if you're trying to go into, you know, the other the other part of Berlin. Um, Well, just like a nuisance. Yeah. Yeah. Even today, historical walls, real or virtual, are great flashpoints and very likely to be the causes of armed conflict and war. The 38th parallel of the Korean Peninsula, which separates North and South Korea, is called the Demilitarite Zone, or DMZ, when in fact it is one of the most fearfully armed places on the planet. Similarly, the Trump administration's promised wall spanning over a thousand miles along the U.S.-Mexico border is likely not to make the United States safer, but rather will serve to vilify the important trading partners and its people. The irrational fear of others manifests itself in both tangible and conceptual ways, erecting many insurmountable yet invisible walls with visa requirements, immigration laws and quotas, income inequality, and the chasms that still separate us by race, gender inequality, religion, ethnicity, and any other discernible differences remain the tools of choice to be fearful. Sarah, let's talk a little bit about the biology of fear. You ready? I'm so ready. All right. So fear is an intrinsic human emotion designed to protect us from perceived threats. The reaction begins in the region of the brain called the amygdala. Yes, this almond-shaped structure located in the brain's temporal lobe is responsible for determining the emotional significance of stimuli. A threatening stimulus, such as the sight of a wild tiger, triggers a fear response in your amygdala. From there, the amygdala prepares the body for movement while releasing stress hormones. Another important function of the amygdala is to trigger the sympathetic nervous system. This division of the nervous system prompts the adrenal glands to release epinephrine into the bloodstream. Epinephrine, otherwise known as adrenaline, continues to the, contributes to the symptoms commonly associated with fear, such as shortness of breath, rapid heart rate, and butterflies in your stomach. This hormone also causes dilation of the pupils, tunnel vision, and reduced hearing. A brain region called the hippocampus is also involved in one's fear response. This region, along with the prefrontal cortex, is responsible for memory storage and decision-making. When stimulated, these centers assess the perceived threat and accordingly to control the fear response. 
Some argue that fear is a psychological construct rather than, than discoverable through scientific investigation. Others argue that the term fear cannot properly be applied to animals because we cannot know whether they feel afraid. Studies in rodents show that there are highly specific brain circuits for fear, whereas findings from human neuroimaging seem to make the opposite claim. Interesting. I just want to fangirl for a minute. Ever since we found our guest on Instagram, I don't know when it was, but every time I read their name, their handle, I just got a chuckle. Yeah, I <laughs> I'm love it. so excited yes. to talk to our guest after the break. See you then. Welcome back. Our guest's name today is Carissa Weber. For the last 10 years, she has worked as a licensed professional counselor and a clinical substance abuse counselor. She has always been drawn to mental health, especially how the brain impacts our mental health. Not only does this topic have meaning in her life professionally, but it also has personal meaning. Throughout her life, she has struggled with anxiety, depression, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, and now the stress of wearing multiple hats in her life, wife, mom, therapist, and aspiring equestrian. It is her goal to share with the world the science behind mental health so people have the most up-to-date information about how to improve their mental health and have the quality of life they deserve. Welcome, Carissa Weber. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. We are so excited you're here. Mm -hmm. It is so great to be here and kind of talk more about mental health, especially after your great history lesson. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. I know I, it will be a hard act to follow, but we are <laughs> sure you're up for the task. <laughs> uh, Carissa, tell us a little bit about what you do. Yes, I am, as kind of my bio said, I am a licensed professional counselor here in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. um, currently, I work in a private practice setting, uh, work with people who are overcoming addictions, um, people with neurodiversity, and also with severe and persistent mental illness. It's kind of my, my calling. Um, a lot of people, they like their general, let's just deal with depression, anxiety. It's like, no, bring me Bring me the fun stuff that people don't see normally. I love that. Absolutely. Um, and when I am not at work, I write this little blog called That Darn Amygdala, which talks all about the science behind our brain and why our brain does what it does when mental illness is present. Um, I have found in my practice when I incorporate the neuroscience, more people are likely to follow through with healthy coping skills rather than just blow them off and say, this is a distraction. This isn't actually going to help. Um, so I figure why not share that benefit with the entire world? Great. I love yeah. that. I, everything about the, the neuroscience and the biology, I, it is so exciting for clients to just be able to have a uh, like verbiage and just like use the vernacular that we use because there's there's a lot of stigma that just suggests that mental health is well it is all in your head which is like a silly dismissal but mm -hmm. <laughs> literally is in our head but giving them the opportunity to explain actually why it's happening on a scientific yeah. basis yeah well and when we talk about it you're right mental health is all in our head because that's mm -hmm. where our brain is located yep but people tend to forget that our brain is a physical part of our body so our mental health is our physical health it just is a little more specialized because it has a little more parts that you know science is still uncovering and mm -hmm. i think it also helps to like validate 
that you didn't do anything wrong like this is just a process it's not like it doesn't mean you're good or bad it's just like Mm -hmm. that's what's happening in your brain right now yep and I think that's one of my favorite sayings I use in my my sessions with my clients besides that damn amygdala or that darn amygdala (laughs) or that stupid amygdala um (laughs) but is our brain is doing what our brain does and that's keeping us safe sometimes it doesn't make sense but based on the wiring of our brain, it totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It, you, you frame the brain as an ally rather than mm-hmm. something trying to trip us up. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah. All right. How has the pandemic affected your job day to day? Ooh, um, the pandemic has, <laughs> it, 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 I have to admit there's been pros and cons from the pandemic. Um, I have definitely been moved more to telehealth, which is amazing. Um, I have now, instead of my four o'clock and five o'clock hours being my prime time, everybody fighting for, I have a lot of parents that fight for 11, 12 and one o'clock because that's when their kids go down for a nap. Uh It's great. Um, But I've also had a lot more people who have come in and they're just, I've telling me, I've never felt this way before. Why am I so anxious? Why am I so depressed? Why do I feel like this? I've never felt like this before. And when you point out some of the obvious things that we have faced during COVID, um, sometimes they meet it with disbelief. They're like, no, that can't be it. There's got to be something more. And it's like, no, this is kind of what our brains have been geared for and wired for is uncertainty. And we are doing what our brains are doing. Um, On the other side, I will say that my numbers, and I don't know if you guys have seen this in your practice too, have been amazingly high. Um, I went from, you know, scheduling a pretty decent caseload to now having a three-month wait list. And this week, even though I still have Friday tomorrow, I have 12 people on my cancellation. There are some therapists out there that are like, oh my God, that's great. That shows that I'm a great counselor. And then you look at me and I'm like, that shows that I am not helping people. And people are asking for help and they're being rejected and I hate it. So I'm going to do something about it and write a blog and hopefully get it spread all over the place that people can at least get the research while they're waiting. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for not taking other people's, that's something a lot of therapists get tripped on is taking other people's, you know, grief and trauma and just kind of looking at it through return on investment. That's not very kind. Yeah. And you know, and that's so tough, especially when we know that there's a mental health shortage on top of a mental health crisis going on. Um, we have to be there to help people. It's not a matter of who's got the bigger business, who's making the most money. It's about how are we reaching people with valid, accurate information rather than, you know, people saying, hey, I saw this on TikTok. This is going to make my mental health all better. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Uh- the enthusiastic head nodding 100 percent. i think i saw like a i saw a like tiktok on reddit so i wasn't really like watching a tiktok but it was like of a doctor like disproving a lot of like especially mental health claims so just be careful when you're looking at tiktok and making sure that you're receiving information from an accredited individual and even still just you know Mm -hmm. check it out Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yep definitely All right. How is your personality represented your work? Oh, um, many of my clients would describe me as the crazy plant lady. 
Um, in my awesome office, yes. I have over 38 different types of plants. <laughs> wow. Damn. That's a lot of plants. I did not expect that number. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, and it's really cool because I I do a lot of analogies with plants. It's something even when my clients are getting ready to end their therapy journey with me, I have like a little baby nursery in my my office that they get to pick a plant and that's what they get to take home. Um, But no, most, most of the people that I work with will... They, they tell me that I'm outside of the box, that I think outside of the box. I am not the stuffy counselor that they typically think of. And we do. I, I try to incorporate a lot of fun things. I try doing a lot of practice of what we preach in session. So people get an idea that they can do this outside. Absolutely. Wonderful. What do you uh, like most about being a therapist? And what is the most difficult thing about being a therapist? Oh, the thing I love the most about being a therapist is the light bulb aha moment when people finally get it to click and you see it on their face and suddenly it's like they've turned the corner and things are amazing. It's like, yes, I I love those moments. Um, Something I find the hardest, I'm this is going to be funny, is insurance companies. I hate the documentation that goes with insurance companies. If Mm -hmm. I could eliminate the mandatory documentation and insurance companies, there'd be no reason for me to ever consider leaving my job. (laughs) Yeah. Nail on the head. Yes. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think some of the most challenging moments I've had weren't with clients, but about clients is having to take time to be on the phone to argue why they should continue to have such high, like high frequency of care because of their Mm -hmm. acuity, but they weren't like, you know, under a certain DSM diagnosis or, or because I wasn't, instituting the type of treatment that the counselor working for the insurance company recommended to me. Ugh. Having those like phone calls, the, you know, just like, all right, I guess we'll do another, like, no, this person like just lost their home. They still need, mm-hmm. they definitely <laughs> need support right now. Yeah, no, my favorite is the insurance company after they reimburse you six months down the road say oh hey we're sorry we really didn't mean to reimburse you you have to pay us back that's atrocious i haven't encountered that oh my gosh in unfortunately in wisconsin every single therapist i know has encountered that at least once in their practice whoa Mm -hmm. so scary and then i mean are you are you then like kind of chased after and it goes to collections if you're unable to pay it or you've already Mm -hmm. you know put food on your table Mm mm-hmm it's pretty yeah, horrible. And it's, it's scary. And it's like, if I could just get rid of insurance, that would be great. Um, unfortunately, though, I mean, there's a reason why people pay for insurance, and they should be able to use their insurance as they mm-hmm. deem fit. <laughs> yes. What, and what insurance a world that companies would be. should also, you know, like, pay therapists uh, what, you know, what they should what they should be paid instead of lower rates as well. Yeah, definitely. I, Carissa, I, it was probably the case for you during the beginning of the pandemic when everything was being fully reimbursed. I think there was this kind of like misperception that they were kind of taking on the hero role. Yep. And, you know, I mean, clients were obviously saving like so much money, which was so great. But there was yep. like kind of this like, well, I'm doing this now. I, I like yep. felt the IOUs coming. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And it stinks because, you know, 
insurance just makes life harder for everybody. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Mm-hmm. All right. Tell us why you are a therapist and what drew you into your field. Um, you know, it's funny because when I originally went to college, I went to school for nursing and I found myself drawn more and more and more to talking with the clients about what they were feeling because they were in the hospital. So during my nursing clinicals, you know, rather than doing my full evaluation, I find myself spending an hour with the client then going, I didn't do my homework assignment. (laughs) And, you know, that doesn't really get get you far in nursing school. Mm -hmm. But anyways, after that, um, decided to go down the road to psychology, go down the road into becoming a therapist, because I did. I love talking to people. I love helping them, you know, process their feelings and be that listening ear. And it is, I have to say, one of the most rewarding jobs out there. If you can get through the insurance red tape. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I, I, I love that you had your own aha moments as kind yeah. of like a like a director into this. That's, that's really neat. What are most people's reactions when you tell them you're a therapist? And what would you like their reactions to be? Um, well, it kind of depends. Here in central Wisconsin, there's kind of this weird 50-50 split where there's some people where you say you're a mental health therapist and suddenly they stop talking to you altogether. Just <laughs> nothing. Mm-hmm. Nada. Um, and you're like, okay. And then you have some people who are on the complete other end of the side who suddenly have no problem divulging all their dirty life little secrets and traumas. And you're like, we are at a wedding. Why are you doing this? <laughs> So I would love them rather than to be afraid or be like, we're going to jump over all boundaries and talk about myself. I would love them to be able to say, oh, that is so interesting. I would love that. Yeah. An answer given for many jobs that are maybe not as interesting or or equally interesting, but, you know, just not valued way more. That answer you gave initially, I really felt that somebody seeking advice and giving you divulging their traumas when you were at happy hour or at a wedding or somewhere where you don't want to hear things. Yeah. Yeah, Like anytime you're not being a therapist. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Sometimes it's nice to just be that person, that sounding board, but at the same point in time, when you're telling me about what happened when you were four years old and I'm like, I've, I'm sitting here with a drink in hand and watching my kids go crazy on a dance floor. No, this is not the time for me to help you with your traumas. Fair enough. Yeah, absolutely. All right. How has your identity helped or hindered your practice? And we're talking racial, you know, ethnic, sexuality, gender. For me, it's very interesting um, because in central Wisconsin, central Wisconsin tends to be a little more conservative. Um, as somebody who identifies as an LGBTQ plus ally, it's been amazing to give people that safe place to come in to receive the help that they need to have that understanding and kind of help build an alliance within their own support system. On top of that, another thing that's really played a huge factor in my own practice is I see a lot of people within the farming community. I myself am a hobby farmer. I come from a line of people who enjoy farming. 
um, spent many a summer still to this day making hay and doing the fun 4-H things. And so when we have a lot of situations going on with our farmers, because farmers, a lot of people don't realize it, um, farmers really are struggling right now with their mental health, especially with the milk market crashing. Um, there's been some really nasty crop damage done because the storms and over, over rain and then drought in some areas. And farmers really are at a high risk of suicide. And so being able to relate to them and know what they're going through and adjust how we see our schedules based on what they need to do really makes it important and helps be that ally for them that they know that this isn't somebody who's going to ding them if they call in two hours before their appointment session saying I'm stuck in the middle of the field I can't get out mm -hmm. I tend to show a lot of grace and say hey that's fine do you mind if we reschedule for another time and probably not next week because I'm going to be out making hay or you know they say hey we got pull back with milking. Hey, no problem. We'll just reschedule. And I think with that kind of compassion and understanding, it allows mental health to continue to be accessible and really helps, helps my practice. So people can say, Hey, this is a therapist who will accommodate the farmer. This is a therapist who is willing to work with hours that are outside of normal practice hours. And it works. It works so well, especially for this community. That's amazing. I mean, it's, it, I mean, truly, obviously mental health should be available to all. And it, it's, it's so cool that you understand that part and are able to move your schedule and to be flexible. That's, that's so cool. Yeah. I'm so happy to have that information too. What, a, what a cool thing that I would have never learned. And I yeah. like had, but it makes perfect sense that there is a mental health crisis among farmers and I mean, I can imagine something longstanding too, just because of the inaccessibility. Well, and you talk about that, especially for a lot of farmers, um, at least the dairies around here in Wisconsin have started to push out farmers who have um, milking operations that are 30 cows or less, <laughs> which makes up about 70% of the dairy farmers. And so it has been... For a lot of our farmers, it's been they're either trying to make make more with what they've got or they're trying to purchase more cows than they know how to handle or they're leaving a five generation business. And it's it's a heartbreaking, heartbreaking thing to see. Absolutely. Wow. Great answer. That's so yeah. incredible. Yeah. I, it's it's wonderful to hear that. I mean, because we're just we're talking cultural identity and that's certainly yeah. where you're coming from. That's really yeah. cool. It is. And a lot of people, again, and we talk about that, the culture ID, a lot of people don't realize that every place is a little bit different. I'm sure my general approach and my knowledge of, of farming and um, union workers and um, may not be poignant in other parts of the country or even in other parts of the state, I don't think I could do this talk if I was in Madison, Wisconsin versus central Wisconsin. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, a lot I'm... of East Coast millennials that would love to learn how to hobby farm for you, myself included. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is, it is fun. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, it's really, it's, I think about it every day. I'd love to, I'd love to try some things out. Definitely. Yeah. But we'll see if my first compost bus bucket is successful. I'm counting that. All right. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. No, absolutely. <laughs> um, so Krista, how do you approach self-care? Wow. Um, I am definitely a physical outlet person. Um, you know, a lot of people, I teach a lot of mindfulness, I teach yoga, but I'm somebody who I have to exert that physical energy. Um, what's great about being on a hobby farm is there is no shortage of exertion of physical energy. Um, my parents always thought I was crazy growing up because I wanted a horse because I wanted all the responsibilities to go with it. They're like, <laughs> no. most girls want to just ride. Why do you want this? And for me, my self-care comes in about, I go 15 minutes to my backyard before I even go into the house and I pet some horses, I throw some hay down and just get to take a moment to switch hats from being a therapist to being a mom and a wife. And on days that are really, really bad, I have an amazing wood pile that needs splitting and I love chopping wood. Wow. Nice. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So, and you couple that with the fact that I have a very particular pet chicken who comes up and loves on me every day that I go outside and, you know, even going in the house and listening to my family, we're a very musical family. So it's like, there's, to me, self-care is all over the place. I love the importance of ritual and how it can just look mm. so differently for people. Thank mm -hmm. you for sharing that. That was really beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Nice, nice transition here. I'm very curious about this answer. What is a guilty pleasure of yours? Oh, one that you um, feel really guilty about and that you're sharing with us and no one else in the world. <laughs> well, I feel guilty about it, but I'm not ashamed of it. I am somebody who will watch Christmas specials any time of the year. Ooh, Ooh. good one. I, my, my husband and I have a very set rule that I can put Christmas lights up before October 31st for the simple fact that after that there's snow and it's icky, but I'm not allowed <laughs> to turn Christmas decorations on until after Thanksgiving and the Christmas tree cannot go up before December 1st. Okay. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not even going to lie. Two weeks ago, I had the kids and I, we were watching the movie, The Christmas Story. Yeah. That is really nice. Yeah. yeah. So guilty yes ashamed no yeah man. I, I love that I, I i am curious how long it took the two of you to like find a middle ground on those rules um if you know it really wasn't too hard for the simple fact that um my husband's upbringing when it came to christmas was very very different from mine and so it was out of mutual respect that we were able to decide that this would be the most appropriate thing because I came from a family where, yes, our Christmas lights were on the day of Halloween, like midnight, November 1st, they were on. Christmas it's the opposite of mischief on. night. It was like un-mischief night. Well, it's funny you talk about that because we here. Oh, we forgot family, to ask you. We yeah. Don't, yeah, we don't do a mischief night at mm -hmm. all. So. Yeah, I join a. I know you know some have some family in California and I, like yeah. a lot of folks just have not heard of it. And it's mm -hmm. like, we, I mean, we just thought this is like Joanna said, this is information that everyone has. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah. It's just like, it doesn't, I mean, I, I'm sure it would catch on with a lot of people here, but when we talk about, yeah. mm -hmm. 
but it, it's funny because here in Wisconsin, we can typically plan a harvest is going to be around Halloween. And then on top of that, um, deer hunting is a huge thing here. And many people miss out on, on trick or treating because they're in their deer stands. Wow. So y'all, y'all are busy. Yeah. Too busy yeah. for mischief night. <laughs> <laughs> hey, don't get me wrong. There's still mischief that happens. It's just probably nice. not the traditional idea of mischief. Oh, so cool. Mm-hmm. Sarah, do you have any guilty pleasures? Oh, uh, I will like once you share one very slowly. Okay. Yeah, I have a spooky season one. I was thinking about it. I said, I love ghost shows. I do not believe in ghosts, but I love watching them. Uh, I have a couple favorites. Zach Bagans is one of my favorite people to watch just because he's so excited about ghost hunting. that it's just like nice to see. He's like, (gasps) you know, uh, he like one time found this like, you know, at the at the when you have a fireplace in the fireplace there's like a door to put the ashes like into your basement and he was like oh, this was for bones and like it wasn't but he was just so excited about it it's just like nice to see that um and I, I also like learning about the history of things in a spooky way so, it makes the information stick I yeah, think. yeah 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 there's yeah. this one called the hauser files that's like very that does like a lot of historical things and mm-hmm. uh i i love just like ooh, okay i didn't know that now i'm afraid i am i know that <laughs> all right so mine now i would love to say that i am a therapist who has worked in inpatient psych and would i just balk at the idea of uh, exploiting old asylums into haunted houses but i love haunted asylums oh. i love going there in organized groups i love paying too much money for it i love it i love walking past the old hospital bed oh then you a rickety come, bucket then you need to come to central wisconsin because we have an old asylum that had a farm and there are tunnels between where the old asylum was to the barn and it is freaky I love it. That is so spooky. That's so cool. I certainly will. I'm going to go to House on the Rock and then I'm going to go to that spooky asylum. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure Zach Bacon's has been in those tunnels just like freaking out, you know? And they're always just like, Like, it's like, oh, it's like how I am all the time. (laughs) Yep. Oh, very nice. Very nice. All right, Carissa, what is your least favorite therapy phrase if you have one? Oh, without a doubt. How does that make you feel? Yep. <laughs> I loathe it. I will use it sarcastically in session with Dr. Phil's accent. Um, especially when I have somebody who, you know, they know their skills and I say it, that's usually their cue of, oh, hey, I need to think about this differently um, for my long-term clients. Yeah. What a good transitional <laughs> object, yeah. though. Just like, yeah. remember. Yeah. <laughs> can, we, can we get a Dr. Phil... Um, impression right now um how does that make you feel (laughs) that was all i ever wanted thank you yep i absolutely hate that saying Mm -hmm. it does Uh, suck and that is a frequent offender for that answer for that question yes absolutely Mm -hmm. uh what's your favorite therapy outfit Okay, I'm going to go all stereotypical here. I love wearing my leggings. I love wearing a tank top. And I have more than enough cardigans to 
to cover it. Oh yeah. Yes. <laughs> Heck yeah. Yeah. If, if, if listeners, if you were listening to that, like on really high, I was whispering cardigan over and over again. I was like getting ready. Like card- I know she's yeah. going to say it. Cardigan, cardigan. Yep. Mm-hmm. We're, well, we're and- being haunted by the cardigan ghost. Sorry. <laughs> well, and it's great because like example today, being really, really hot and really, really muggy, I do a lot of outside activities with some of my clients, especially with neurodiversity. I can take that cardigan off and I am fine and I can put it back on. And if I have a client that, you know, is a little more formal, I still look great. Take it off. I'm ready to play. Yeah, that's a very good point. Definitely. I also just sometimes like my arms to be covered. I was with a group of people and I like put on a sweatshirt and I was like, like getting comfy. He's like, oh, let me turn the air conditioner. I was like, no, 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 it's fine. I just like being covered. Yeah. Exactly. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But then they made it too hot. I had to take it off. <laughs> Nobody listens. <sighs> All right. Carissa, is there any question you want to ask us? Oh, man. I guess I would be interested in hearing from you guys. What got you into therapy and being therapists? Mm. Very good question, Joanna. Yes, you want me do you to want start? start? You know this. I, you know this answer, Sarah. This was a definitely. This is one on one of our uh, bonus episodes. I answered this, but I will answer it again now. Um, I went to therapy in college just to kind of figure out my identity, and um, I found an outlet through music. I was a music major then, but I kind of figured out what I wanted like how I wanted my relationship with music to be and then that was a very kind of freeing experience for me and it helps like kind of cement my path for the rest of my life so I realized I wanted to be a music therapist and then I did do it so yay yeah I love I'm sorry I laughed I thought you're gonna tell the Adam Sandler oh also my therapist <laughs> sounded exactly like Adam Sandler uh which was so strange but he was super helpful uh and i'll always remember you adam sandler nice (laughs) rest in memories no yeah yeah adam sandler's still with us okay all right so my answer is i had very positive experiences with therapy as well i my therapist was a adult that i met that was kind that didn't have any ulterior motives and at first i was like hmm what are you? <laughs> no, what is this? And then I was like, this is just a kind person that wants just like wants me to feel better and is investing in me feeling better. And that feels that feels really good. And I like how calm she is. I like how she seems relatively happy. And she if she's just talking to people like me all day, I mean, I don't mean that the way it sounds, but if she's just talking to people like me all day, it was just it was like love at first sight with the field. Definitely. Just having a positive experience. Good question. Yeah. What are some resources that you feel like people should know about? Well, I might be a little biased here, but I think everybody needs to know about that darn amygdala. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It is, again, my awesome little blog that I write specifically for people, for, for lay people, people who do not know how to read research get confused by the stats that are included in research papers. And I go through specifically what our brain is doing when we're anxious, what our brain is doing when we're depressed, how we can release feel-good neurotransmitters, even related to our history lesson, going over what I call the triple F response, which is fight, flight, or freeze, and why our brain does certain things in those moments. 
And I also have started dabbling in the science behind why coping skills work. You know, we talk Ooh. about CBT skills, DBT skills. I have a really, really nice post going on right now about the effectiveness of journaling and why our brain needs it. Um, so that's just me being a little biased. And I think you're allowed to be biased. 100%. <laughs> putting a shameless plug in there. Um, yeah. And the website for that is that darnamygdala.com. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That will go on our website yep. for those who would like uh-huh. access to that. Definitely. But other awesome. resources that I absolutely love, and you brought it up in the history lesson, is how to rewire your brain. I absolutely yes. love that book. She's it is so awesome. And I also like the book Emotional Intelligence by Dan Daniel Goldman. He mm-hmm. does a great job of explaining why it's important for us to identify our emotions and use our emotions as information to help us process what our senses are telling us versus using emotions as facts and giving that darn amygdala more opportunity to run rampant and hijack our prefrontal cortex and dig it with a field mouse and seal the door with a field rock. Um, That is my ice age reference there um it is a huge thing in our house oh, right now perfect oh, great. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm also going to oh. jump on your bandwagon and say that if you're a clinician the person one of the authors of rewire your anxious brain does an amazing amazing um anxiety specialization course on pessy.com and yeah. it is like so good Mm-hmm. Yeah, my favorite part of that course is when she reviews the medications we can take for anxiety yes. and yes. she talks about which it's ones so actually helpful. prevent learning. Oh my God, so good. I think it's just the same name, right? Same name yeah. as the book. Yeah. yeah, it is the same name as the book. Man, we are we are in the fan club today. I love it. Yes, we're fans. Also, uh, this, is, this is my favorite question to ask. Carissa, what is your favorite breakfast? Oh, Breakfast is my favorite meal in the entire world. And my husband does a mean hash brown and then a fried egg with a little yolk still dribbling on it. On top of that, yeah, it is my favorite. And then cheese on top of that. Oh, my God. That is my favorite breakfast in the entire world. No explanation needed. That sounds amazing. (laughs) Feel free to share a photo of that with us. We are absolutely. <laughs> I'll inspired. just like look at it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll look at it tomorrow morning. All right. <laughs> What's something not related to your professional life that you are really excited about? Oh, I am really, really excited about. Um, since COVID started, I have taken up endurance riding with my horses. So that's where we ride long cool. distances and do it in a timed fashion. Um, I'm really, really excited because my, my one mare, so my, my horse that I've had forever, she's my heart horse and my new colt who will be the kind of the replacement as my mare is now 21 years old. We've been doing this, um, this challenge. It's called the pony express challenge where we ride 1700 miles in less than a year. And we have finally crossed, crossed the threshold of a thousand miles so i'm like yes that is very cool cool. i'm learning so much today (laughs) thank you so much yeah that's all and congrats that's so exciting yeah so 
we've been slowly working on it. We kind of started it last year, but unfortunately I had a really nasty accident that is required now two surgeries. And so I had to take a break, but we have consistently, what was it in the month of July, we nailed out about 150 miles just there. And I was like, yay. Yeah. Absolutely. That is very exciting. I'm very glad we asked that question. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Here's our final would you rather question. Uh, Would you rather that you can remember every detail of every day of your life or you can remember your dreams vividly? Oh, I did um, not write this question. I didn't write it. Terrible. um, Wow. Um. I, I know my clients and my family would be like, yes, remember, remember the days. Um, I think I'd go more with the dreams. Yeah, same. 100% would go with the dreams. It's insane that I would ever, I use yeah. that word correctly, that I'd ever want to remember every mm-hmm. minute of every day. That's so much time. That's so many yeah. memories. No, I have a feeling that that would get very overwhelming, very, very quick. Yes. Whereas it'd be interesting to remember some of the dreams, you know, like when you wake up in the morning and you go, what was that? And you don't actually remember what it was. You just know that it was really weird. Absolutely. I'd love to go on like a marathon of dream interpretation too. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like make a career out of it. Mm -hmm. So I am someone who does vividly remember their dreams every night. Uh, Like I can remember the dream I had while I was napping this afternoon. Um, And if I write down my dreams, I can remember them from like years and years and years ago. It's actually part of the reason I went to therapy because I was having like really disturbing dreams that I could like remember in detail. Uh, I was like, this is a lot. I feel like I should probably, (laughs) you know, talk to somebody about this um we ended up not talking about it at all but because <laughs> there was like a lot of other stuff going on uh but yeah I mean I guess I would I guess I would choose the remembering vividly because I already do it but I think I would just want to like know what it's like to remember everything in my day and just like see if I could handle it like a test run yeah yeah, yeah. I got that I like it yeah good answers all around thanks Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. I would love to talk more about the amygdala and about our fear responses and about like those neurological uh, ways of explaining the ways our brain works uh, in order to help clients. That's such an amazing, uh, such amazing work that you do. Yes, thank you. And it's really is such interesting science. And I think a lot of people don't understand what is going on that is creating so much of this? Um, in your history lesson, you talked so much and did a really great job of outlining kind of what the amygdala does. Um, one of the things I'd like to add to that is that the amygdala is very, very impulsive and does not think about long-term consequences. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because a lot of the information that the amygdala gets are from our senses. It's actually when we talk first about where our brain gets the information, it goes through the part of our brain called the emulus. There we go. I said it right. Which is part of our prefrontal cortex that processes spatial awareness, problem solving, self-awareness, our sensory stuff. And as soon as the amygdala gets that information, it kind of taps into the hippocampus 
or in the words of my three-year-old daughter, the hypocampus. Why not? Because yeah. it's not a hippopotamus mom. It's not a hippo <laughs> mom. It's a hypo. It's like, okay. <laughs> but the hippocampus, to take in the memories to say, hey, when did we experience this last? And as this is happening in a millisecond, the amygdala goes, hey, this isn't safe anymore. We need to get ourselves out of there. So our body starts to produce the epinephrine, as you guys shared, which kind of shuts down our digestive that makes us hyper-focused, gets our heart rate ready to either run away, get ready to face our fears, or just freeze like a deer in the headlights. As that is going on, our body is also releasing norepinephrine. And what is really important about norepinephrine is, is this heightens all of our senses because we're trying to get more information on how to protect ourselves. Now, by the time that norepinephrine is being released and it's triggering our adrenal gland to release cortisol to prepare us for whatever we're going to do, that's about when our prefrontal cortex, which is this part behind our forehead here, wakes up and says, wait a minute, is this accurate? And I like to, to remind people that as impulsive as our amygdala is, our prefrontal cortex is our planning. They, it, it likes to think about what are the outcomes, what are the best ways to do this, and what are the facts that support acting the way that we do. Sometimes it agrees with the amygdala. You know, example, panicking because you're taking a test. Yeah, yeah, me. Mm -hmm. I don't, <laughs> when it comes to paper tests, my amygdala reigns supreme. But when it comes to other situations where let's say, you know, and I'm just gonna poke fun here. Somebody is afraid of big trees because, you know, back in the day, predators used to jump out of trees at us. Our prefrontal cortex can say, wait a minute, Nothing has ever jumped out at you before from a tree. Nothing has ever hurt you from a tree. Is this appropriate, amygdala? No, stop being a drama queen. And then it releases GABA and glutamate, which calms our body, relaxes our muscles, and then stops the cortisol production. What's interesting is when we talk about cases of anxiety where we have chronic fear all the time, our amygdala is on hyper alert. And what's really cool about the amygdala is most people who are anxious, that amygdala is like bright red, like a Christmas tree, bright mm -hmm. red. But what's interesting is the hippocampus, which is responsible for our long-term and short-term memory, putting emotions together with our memories is actually smaller. It shrinks. The more stress, the more epinephrine and the more cortisol we experience, it shrinks down our hippocampus. So it makes it hard for the hippocampus to properly relay all the memory information because it's so like constrained, which is so interesting. In my brain, it's so interesting. Absolutely. Um, I, yeah. we, everything is just working together and following a certain, a certain guideline. And I, I think one of the examples in the rewire your anxious brain is you know, the amygdala, the, the prefrontal cortex comes in and says, no amygdala, that's not a snake, that's a stick. Like you are yep. safe. You should have, it's good that you were aware. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Good job. Pat on the yep. head. But we're okay here. Yeah. yeah. And I yeah. mean, anybody who's had any, you know, who has any pets, we've all experienced that where our pets freak out and we kind of look at them and say, seriously, 
seriously mm-hmm. my it's favorite a plastic my- bag <laughs> yeah it's well, a plastic my favorite, bag <laughs> my favorite is my horse anytime we come up on a trail to an uprooted tree i swear to god she thinks it's an alien that's going to mm. eat her because she stops she tenses up she stares at it she starts breathing really really fast and we're walking past it and she's just like jerky like nope 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 and then she gets next to it and she takes off and we get done and i'm like really was that why and i use that as an example she was totally the amygdala in that moment and i was the prefrontal cortex because by the time i could relay the information to her that this tree was not going to eat her mm-hmm. she was already gone interesting yes. I, yeah, I, I like that kind of like separating the organisms too into that's pretty cool. Yeah. Oh. And what so a- what's cool though is a lot of people don't realize that we can do things to increase our hippocampus size. We can do things to strengthen our prefrontal cortex's ability to tell the amygdala to shut up. And <laughs> those are the things that we teach in therapy. And I think sometimes therapists, we get out of practice of explaining why those coping skills work, why those coping skills rewire the brain. Mm-hmm. We just yes. think that people are going to do it automatically. It's like, nope. So that is, that is that darn amygdala.com, correct? And yes. I'm, I'm so excited to peruse more, more than the initial peruse. Everybody definitely go and visit that website and just learn how your brain works. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just like, it's just like changing your own headlight, which I did the other day and I'm still very proud of learning how to do things. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was not a sarcastic. No one stopped and offered help, which is one of my big fears that people are like, Uh, ma'am, you need any help? And I'm like, I don't want to give you a lesson in my independence. Let me go. (laughs) Anyway, the point is it's just fun to have control and understand what the tools we have and the toys we have, how they work because yeah. It makes us want to take care of them more and it makes us more invested. Heck yeah. Krista, thank you so much. Yes. Awesome. All right. Joanne, anything else? No. Solid. All right, let's wrap it up. Thank you for listening to the show. Be sure to subscribe slash rate slash review us on Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. You can check us out on Instagram at, what is it? Did we change it? Pod. You can check us out on Instagram at TNDPod, on Twitter at TherapistNDPod, all one word, or visit our website at TNDPodcast.com. If you would like the ability to vote on what questions we ask our guests, access to bonus episodes that are mm-hmm. sipping and ones we're excited about in the future, head on over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash tndpodcast. If you uh, want to just send us an email, you know, just because, you can email us at therapistsnextdoor at gmail.com. Until next time. We, we are, are your therapist, therapist next, next door. <laughs> You threw me a curve. Bye. 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 <laughs> <laughs>